story of the human race, the story of our life is that things have gone wrong. But the character of God is that He takes what is broken and He brings renewal. He brings new life. He mends what is broken and sets it back to the way things should be. And I tell you, I am so thankful that God took me when I was in the most broken place in sin in my life and redeemed me. I, I am a testimony to the grace of God that God can redeem a broken person. And God can do the same for you, and He wants to do the same all over the world. God redeems that which is broken. And when we get to the, the, the book of Nehemiah, what we see is that Jerusalem, God's chosen city for His people, there in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, that place that was supposed to be the center of the worship of God, of the study of God, the exaltation of God, Jerusalem is in a place that it is broken. It is no longer as God intended it to be because of the sin of His people. The people had been moved into exile and recently had begun rebuilding Jerusalem because it had been destroyed by those who came and took it captive. And what we see is that God begins to do a work in Nehemiah. A work of renewal in Nehemiah such that he moves Nehemiah to a place that he can be a part of leading the effort of renewal in that city, his home city of Jerusalem. And what we've been talking about is the fact that when God gets a hold of our life, I truly believe, guys, truly believe, that when God gets a hold of your life, if you realize what God could do through you, that God could do bring so much renewal through you to those that are around you, to your neighborhood, and to our city, to our world, when we allow God to be God in us. And we, we as a church embrace the vision and the call of God on us to bring renewal to this place. Amen? That's what we've been talking about. If you go to the first slide... I'll give you a quick recap. If you haven't been here, I'll catch you up real quick. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about the fact that God's renewal begins within me. All right? So if you're writing stuff down today, and I really want you to write stuff down if you do, um, it'd be great. If you don't have something to write with, you can take out your phone. This is an honor commitment now. No ESPN or Words with Friends, all that kind of stuff. Honor commitment, you can take notes on your phone. But just as a recap, we've been talking. We started talking about how the fact that God's renewal begins where? Within us. If we want renewal to come in the in the place around us, then we must be willing first to allow God to work His renewal within us. And that's exactly what happened with Nehemiah. First, God working in Nehemiah a heart of compassion, giving him a heart for the things that were broken, allowing him not to be okay with things that are not okay. A heart of compassion. The heart of Jesus began to be worked into the heart of Nehemiah. And that heart of compassion should extend into our hearts today. Secondly, we saw in Nehemiah that God was renewing him to bring him to a place where he had a heart of faith. A heart of belief in what God could do. Yes, things were broken. Things were not okay. But God could bring change. Nehemiah, his head was lifted to the Lord. He remembered the presence of the Lord, the power of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, and faith was renewed to his life such that he spent four months before God praying for things that he desired to see. And what we saw is that we too should be praying people. Our hearts should be full of faith for what God can do. Not only should we have compassionate hearts, but we should have hearts that believe God. We should know the Bible. You should be spending time in the Bible every day looking at the promises of God, looking at the person of God, and then praying those promises, saying, God, help me to believe that what you say is true, that the renewal you promise can come true. Third, we saw that Nehemiah was renewed within. We saw this last week because God began to work in him a heart of willingness. Not only should we desire for change, not only should we pray for change, but we should raise our hand and say, God, I will be a part of change. I will be a part of what you're doing. I will not just stand on the sidelines and coach the team or critique the team. I will get onto the field and become a part of the team. I will play my part. Lord, I'm willing. However you want to use me, let me be a part of what you're doing. Everybody track with me, all right? So we saw that first, renewal must begin within us. Now, as we continue in our study, we're going to see this, that God's renewal extends through us. So it begins within us, but secondly, it extends through us. God doesn't save you just for you. God doesn't do His work in you just for you. God doesn't bring renewal within you just for you, although He's happy that it happens within you. God is doing a work in you also, not only for you, but for those around you. 
for the world that he desires to see and believe that he is great, that he is the saving God through Jesus Christ. The first thing we're going to see today in the scriptures is that the first part of allowing God's renewal to extend through us is gaining a vision for the renewal that God wants to bring. So Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2, and we will begin in verse 9. It's on the screens if you don't have your Bible, so feel free to, to follow along. <laughs> A little bit of context. Nehemiah has just raised his hand, allowed God to use him to be a part of the renewal. He has gone to the king, asked the king to be able to go to Jerusalem using the king's resources. And the great mercy and favor of God was on Nehemiah such that the king granted his request. And so here we are, verse 9. The king sends him out, and then it says, Then I came, this is Nehemiah talking, his personal journal, Then I came, to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot, Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I had a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. But I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we were in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So what do we see here happening with Nehemiah? I believe we see that Nehemiah here is gaining a vision for the work that God was going to have him to do. If you're writing something down, I want you to look at this next slide real quick. And write this down, because this is basically where we're going today. We should understand God's vision for His city and assemble a plan and a team to work toward it. Alright? So if you're writing something down, go ahead and write that down right now. We should understand God's vision for His city and assemble a plan and a team to work toward it. What do we see happening? What, what are these mics work? One of these other ones? So I should. What if I try to do that? That'd be great. Okay. Hold on a second, guys. Hello, can you hear me? Take it off. Yeah. You want to this is going to be awesome. Like a rock star. Can you hear me better when I use this? Um, we should understand God's vision for his city and assemble a plan and a team to work toward it. So what do we see happening there in verse 9 of chapter 2? If you go back to verse 9 of chapter 2, what, what ends up happening? Nehemiah has just asked the king, right? He's, he's raised his hand essentially said, God, if, if you want to use me, you can use me. And he, he takes a huge risk essentially approaching the king when he hasn't been asked to approach the king telling the king basically to reverse his whole foreign policy, and then asking for all these resources from the king's 
kingdom resources to fund this work of Jerusalem that previously in Ezra chapter 4 the king himself had stopped. So the king, by the mercy and favor of God, has just granted his request. And then what do we see happening in verse 9? He takes off, right? <laughs> see ya, 12-year vacation, here I come, right? Except it's not quite a vacation because he's going to be working harder than he was in the kingdom. But it says he came to the governors. He goes, he begins his travel. It's a two-month travel from Susa all the way down to Jerusalem. And you can see the king had sent with him because he's an official delegation. Unlike Ezra who kind of went alone, Nehemiah went with the king and the king's, I mean not the king himself, but the king's horsemen and the king's chariots and the army. And so he makes his way toward Jerusalem. And by verse 11, he gets there. And what does he do when he gets there? What's that say? He was there three days. He, after his two-month journey, he takes a vacation, right? He takes three days off. It's, I think it's... Michelle is going to make me listen to this sermon recording over and over by, because I'm going to say this. Leaders should rest. All right? You should rest. There's an important part of rest in the life of every believer. God created the Sabbath, and he called it holy. And in the Ten Commandments, what is one of the commandments? You shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. God himself took a day off and rested. He created days in such a way that, remember in Genesis, he says, there is evening and then there is morning the first day. There is evening and then morning the second day. Why does evening come first? The day, according to the Old Testament, actually begins at night. Because there's a principle in Scripture that shows that our work should come from a place of rest and worship. That as we work, we should be working from a place of worship. If you work all the time, and if you never Sabbath, if you never rest, if you never spend time to be with God, if you never spend time to be with your family, then you will just be frantically working all the time, and the work that you do will be joyless work. And it won't be done unto the glory of God, it will be done unto the glory of self. Because it's not coming from a part of worship. Leaders know how to rest. This leader is trying to get better at resting, okay? I, mean, I would be grateful for your prayers. You need to rest. Some of you guys, you, you live in environments, your work environment, your corporate environment. I mean, I just know how it is because I used to work in corporate America. Some of you guys are in school. You're around people who just study all the time. From morning to night, all they ever do is study. And you can be very tempted to fall into that same culture where you're just sucked into a life of just unending work. But let me tell you, do you believe that it is better that you'll get further your way or do you think you'll get further God's way? And even if by the world standards you got further your way, would you really want that in the end? I'm telling you, I wouldn't want it. I think about Chick-fil-A. I, they've been blessed. I, I respect Chick-fil-A for being closed on Sundays. I went to Cozy Corner the other day. Y'all like Cozy Corner? I went to Cozy Corner the other day, and the guy I was with said, are y'all open on Sundays? Because they were going to see about if they could cater for our building when we opened it. Because <laughs> it's next door. She said, oh, no. She said, we ain't open on Sundays. And he said, not even a half a day? And she said, Lord didn't say take a half day. He said, take a whole day. <laughs> and I said, amen. Amen. That's, I mean, that's the right attitude. It, you know, we should be okay doing what God said. Do we believe that rest is good? Do we believe that taking a day off is good? And again, my wife was looking at me like, well, you only take half days. I, again, I'm, this leader is trying. I'm just saying that Nehemiah is setting an example for us. Because he gets there, does he immediately begin to work? He could have, oh, oh, oh gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, I'll start this, I'm never gonna get done. Ah. No, he didn't start with frantic. He said, you know what, it's gonna be best if I stop, if I take time, if I rest. Allow spiritual renewal, allow physical renewal to rest. On to verse 12. And then, what's it say? He arises in the night. Now it's interesting, Nehemiah goes to great length to say he gets up in the night, he takes a few men with him, and he says, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was not even an animal with me except the one I rode on. He's trying not to stir up anybody. He doesn't want anybody to know what he's doing. And then in verse 13, what is he actually doing? And then he goes out by night to the valley gate, the dragon spring, the dung gate, inspects the walls of Jerusalem, broken down. So what, what Nehemiah begins to do is he gets up in the middle of the night. He doesn't want anybody to know what he's doing. 
And he goes out into the city of Jerusalem and begins to survey the city that he had only heard about up to that point that was broken and in ruins. He begins to tour the city. And that's exactly what you see. He goes north and south and west and east, and he begins to tour the city. Now, when you get to things like Valley Gate and Dragon Spring and Dungate, all right, think about these as like neighborhoods. Essentially, it's like if he came to Memphis and heard Memphis was in ruins, he gets to Memphis, rests for three days, and then in the middle of the night gets up out of Memphis, and then he goes to Mud Island. And then he goes to Uptown. And then he goes to Downtown and the South Main. And then he crosses over to Evergreen. I don't know which one of our communities is the Dungate. <laughs> I don't know which one that is, but man, that's like, oh man, that's, like, that's cool. The Dungate. That's where I probably am. But anyway. Um, that, essentially, that's what he's doing. He's going to different areas of the city, and he's surveying. And then again, go, go ahead to the next slide. In verse 15, look at your Bible. He says again, he says, He goes up by night by the valley, he inspects the wall, and he turns back and enters by the valley gate, so return. He says again, 16, And the officials did not know where I had gone, or what I was doing. And I had not yet told any of the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the ones who were even going to do the work. Nehemiah repeatedly, three, four times here, is saying, he wants you to know something. He wants us to know something. And God wants us to know something through him. He gets to the city. Does he immediately begin the work? Does he immediately say, all right, folks, let's go? No. Does he immediately organize the teams and start out? He takes time to rest, to be with the Lord, to renew. And then he takes time without anybody knowing what's going on. He had not even told them why he was there yet. To go out and see for himself that which God had called him to. And I can just picture, have y'all ever prayer walked at night? You ever had a, a quiet night where you go out and you just you survey things? Or been on a mission trip where you prayer walk? Essentially what you're doing is going out and with an attitude of prayer, going out and looking at the things that you feel that God has called you to and asking the Lord to show you in a specific way, in a very real way, what it is that He wants you to do, who it is that He wants you to touch, how it is that He wants you to do. God is a God of vision. God wants to bring a vision to your life. Listen, if all you do... I heard once this is... How's it go? A vision without a task is just visionary. A task without a vision is drudgery. But a vision with a task makes me a missionary. You need vision and hard work. One without the other leads you to a place that's not healthy. It's not where God wants. God is a God of vision. He calls you to things and wants you to know what He is actually calling you to. He wants you to have a strong vision in your mind for what it is that He wants to do through your life. Do you have a vision statement for your life? Do you have a purpose statement for your life? When you get up every day, what drives you? Do you pray a prayer before you leave? What, what is it that motivates you to do the things that you do? What is it that at the end of the day you evaluate your day based on or your week based on? Do you have a vision for your life? Do we as a church have a vision? I pray you would say yes, we're going to talk about it in just a second. But what Nehemiah is doing here is he's going out without anybody knowing, and he's praying to God, he's asking God for a vision, the specific things that he wants, God wants him to do. Y'all see that? Leaders cultivate and gain a vision. That's the next slide. Uh, point number one. Assembling a plan. God wants us to have His vision for the city. And then put His vision to work. God wants us to have His vision for the city. And then put His vision to work. When you go out working, He doesn't just want you to go out doing whatever it is you feel like doing. Okay, I'll just try this, or I'll try this, or I'll try this. No. God wants you to have a vision. There are some people who just say they pray about everything. Right? And I believe in praying about everything, by the way. But there are some people who have an attitude in life that's it's almost um, just, I'll just, there's no plan or anything. I just kind of go and do what I want to do. And if I feel like doing it, then I do it. And if I don't feel like doing it, then I don't do it. And it's just kind of like, however I want to live, I live. All right? 
I do believe in being spirit-led, but I also being, believe in being driven by the vision that God gives for us. We don't have to sit around asking the things that God wants us to do because he's told us in his word the things that God wants us to do. We know God's will. Our purpose is to get God's vision and then plug ourselves in to his will. Okay? First, we need to assemble a plan, have a strong vision for that which God calls us to. Number two, we should assemble a team. If you look back at Nehemiah chapter 2, what you'll see is that after he takes time to gain a vision from God, after he feels confident in the thing that God has called him to, after he's put his hands on it, touched it, and seen what it is that he's actually going to be doing, and asked God for the strong vision and guidance that is needed to undertake this work, then, and only then, does he begin to communicate that vision to others. Leaders take God's vision to people. And this is what Nehemiah does. Look at it in verse 17. And he says to them, You see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with the gates burned? Come. Now think about this. This is the first they've heard of what God is calling them to do. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And then Nehemiah begins to tell them of how the hand of God had been upon him for good and the words that the king had spoken to him. And they said, let us rise and build. This has got to be a crazy, exciting, scary moment for the people of Israel. Because Nehemiah shows up in town. They don't know why he's there. He's with an official delegation from the king. The king had already shut this project down. They were hiding from their enemies at the time, going, how in the world are we ever going to do it? We tried it once and we failed. And now Nehemiah shows up and says, hey guys, let's build the walls. And everybody looks at him like, are you serious? And he says it again, hey guys, let's build the walls, right? It's similar to me walking up to you and saying, hey, I want us to see every person in your workplace saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you look at me and go, huh? I want us to be a church that works toward eliminating oppression in our city, eliminating crime, taking away fatherless homes. Um, did you just say what I thought you just said? <laughs> yes, that's what I said. And then he begins to tell them that this is not a vision of Nehemiah. This is the call of God. He begins to tell them, guys, this is not something that I'm just saying, let's rally the troops and do it, but God has called us to this, and he wants to do this so much that he began to bring me the news. God brought me the news. He broke my heart. He began to give me faith. He gave me willingness to raise my hand and then see what the king has done. God is in this, folks. This is not just something that we can do. This is something that God is doing, and he's just asking us to be a part of it. Nehemiah, as any good leader should do, is casting a strong vision for that which God calls him to and saying to the folks, let's get behind this because God is in it, and if God is for us, then who can be against us? Amen? He's saying, guys, this is what we're called to. Let's go. Let's get ourselves here and go. And the people respond as any church should respond. I, I pray church that's under godly leadership, which is, what do they say? Okay, Nehemiah, we believe God, we believe that you're a man of God, and we will go. We'll be a part of it. Let's, it doesn't matter what happened in the past, it doesn't matter how scared we might feel, we believe that God is in this, and if God is in this, then we want to be a part of it. Does that make sense? So Nehemiah here is assembling a vision and then assembling a team. Now what in the world does this have to do with this team? Alright? What in the world does this have to do with this well, I'll tell you this. I believe that our church, I believe strongly that our church, as well as many other evangelical churches in our city, are going to be able to be a part of a great renewal here in Memphis, Tennessee. I believe that with all my heart. I'm praying for it. Are you praying for it? I pray you're praying for it. I believe that with all my heart, that God wants to bring and will bring renewal here in Memphis, Tennessee, and wants us to be a part of it. 
I believe that my role as leader of this church is to cast a strong vision for that which I believe God wants us to do. And I believe that our role together as a church is to say, let's go. Let's be a part of it. Are you all tracking with me? So today, in the next few minutes, I want to I walk through real quick what I believe a good vision for our city looks like. Straight from the Bible. Go to the next slide. I want to show you this. What is God's vision for a city? You ever ask that question? We keep talking about renewal, renewal that God wants to bring in our city, but what would renewal look like if it came? What, what does a godly city look like? What is God calling us to do here? I don't really understand. It sounds exciting. I want to be a part of renewal, but what is God's vision for the city? I want to do a little tour of what I believe God's vision for Memphis, Tennessee, and every city. If you're listening online, I believe this is true for your city. But this is God's vision for our city. First, you've got to understand what a city is scripturally. It comes from the Hebrew word, ir. Alright? Not like this kind of ear, but ear as a city. And what that means is actually defined by any human population that is surrounded by a fortified wall. The definition of city is any human population that is surrounded by a fortified wall. Now, we like to define cities in our day by size, right? We say, oh, Memphis is a city, but uh, let me just pick a... I don't want to pick on any one of you. What's a small town? Yazoo City. I'll pick on Michelle. Yazoo City, where Michelle's from Mississippi. That's a town. And then Benton, which is even smaller outside of Yazoo City, that's a village. (laughs) So we like to define cities by size. Memphis is a city, but a smaller town is not. But the Bible doesn't really define it that way because most of the cities, the ears in the Bible, are three to 4,000 people in size. What defines a city is not its population size, but rather its density. Okay? A lot of what I'm going to tell you today, by the way, comes from a book called Center Church by Tim Keller. It's one of the best books that I've read on inner city ministry, and it's been so helpful to me in forming my vision, our vision for this city. And so I just wanted to tell you that in case you want further resources on this. But what defines a city is not its population size, but rather its density. The fact that you've got people living on top of people living on top of people. All right? Three to 4,000 people would be living in five acres-ish. That is about 250 people per acre. New York City has about 120 people per acre. So you think about the density, the compactness of cities. That is what makes a city a city, is its density. The fact that all of this human population is squished together. It's this awesome culture that emerges. If you understand the city then, what you understand is that a city is a place where humanity is intensified. Because you have this large, dense population of humans living in a very confined area. What you get is the goods and the evils of humanity essentially just intensified. Put on a spotlight. And it's interesting because in Scripture, what you see is a dual nature of the potential of cities. Because humanity is intensified, because we see both good and evil within humanity itself, within each city there is potential for great evil, self-rebellion, self-service, self-propagation, or for great good, honoring the Lord and giving glory to God as He has intended us to do. Because it's simply people that are compacted together, what is in the hearts of those people becomes intensified in the city. And the potential of the city then lives in this tension between where are the people's hearts. If the people's hearts are more toward God, then the city has great potential to glorify God and bring great good to the world. But if in the people's hearts they're evil and rebellious toward God, then the city has great potential to do harm and evil toward the world and propagate the false gospel of self-satisfaction. Everybody track it with me. What marks a city? Well, what marks any city, if you just look at it scripturally, first, cities are marked by safety and stability. God wants to use cities for safety and stability. That's what defines cities in the very beginning. The wall that went around the city was meant to protect them from wild animals. It was meant to protect them from intruders. It was meant to protect them against foreign invading armies. There was a safety that came being inside the city. 
And there was also stability that came being inside the city. And the cities is where legal systems first began. See, previously, outside of the city, if you go out in the rural areas, people just practice like the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? You're going to kill me, I'll come track you down and kill you too. And this still happens today in what we call uncivilized, which means uncitified, places. Where there's no system of jurisprudence in those places. Because there's no governing body to simply, essentially keep that, that human behavior in check. But with the start of cities, citification, which is the same word for civilization, what you see is the beginning of systems of jurisprudence, the beginning of legal systems that keep in check human behavior. That's why in the Bible, you see in the book of Numbers, you've heard this term cities of refuge. You've heard this term? What are cities of refuge? Cities of refuge are for, play, for people to go to who feel like they have been accused wrongly of a crime or a lot of different things that could happen, but they run to the city for protection, to protect them against those who would cause them harm that would not be the right kind of harm, the right kind of, of action. Does that make sense? Cities became a place where there should be safety and stability. Secondly, cities should be a place where there is diversity. In the city, what, you, what began to happen, you've got humans on top of humans on top of humans, right? And it's, it's naturally a place for diversity. Because it's a safe place, you would get immigrants coming into the city. Uh, we have people in this church that world, work with World Relief. A small group in this church is working with a family from a refugee family. You have refugee families coming into a city like Jerusalem, like they come into Memphis, to seek refuge, a place of safety. They're escaping persecution in some way, and cities become a place of refuge, and because of that, you get this great diversity because all kinds of people flock into the city. And because cities, there's so many people, people who are kind of weird don't feel out of place in the city. Which is why you've got some strange things happening in the Memphis. Right? You can be an older single adult. You can be a, a, a young tattooed teenager. You can be, I mean, people who who may feel like they're different or have a different kind of, of, of lifestyle or personality feel more comfortable inside cities because of the very nature of the city itself being a diverse place. They don't stand out like a sore thumb in the city. Everybody make sense? All right. Third, cities are a place of productivity, creativity. What happens when you get people who are of the same trade and profession together? Typically, they spawn new ideas. They come up with ways to do things better, Right? When you get people together, you have culture emerging. This is what happens in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. It says they began to have agriculture and arts and wood making and building. Culture emerges. You have things like theater and dance and singing and really good music, right? Creativity happens and productivity happens. This is why today we still go to conventions. Because conventions bring people together who are of like mind, of like nature, and it's meant to make you better. This is what's always meant to be happening in cities. Next slide. Cities are very important to the heart of God. I'm casting a vision now for why I believe renewal is coming to Memphis. Cities are extremely important to the heart of God. Now you can see through the Bible at times, cities are looked on in a negative way, but it's only looked on negative when sin is abounding. Cities are very important to the heart of God. Why? Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. God said to Jonah, now this is Jonah, he's being rebellious, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, because those stinking Ninevites are bad people, and he doesn't want them to receive grace. Y'all ever have people like that in your life? I just wish they would never receive grace. God wants to change that heart. He wanted to do that in Jonah. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did not make grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What God is saying is, I have a great heart for cities because in cities, there are tons of people. And I love people. I created people to love me and to know me, and I love people. So where there is a great concentration of people, you better bet there's a great concentration of my heart. Everybody tracking? Psalm 145 says, The Lord is good to all, and He has compassion on all. 
But we also know in Scripture that God has a special heart for people. Because it was people, we know from Genesis 9 and James 3, it is people who are made in the very image and likeness of God. So in the city where there are lots of people hanging out together and dwelling together, God has a special heart for the city. God has a bigger heart for Memphis. I've got to be careful when I say this. He loves all people the same. But the intensity of his love equals the number of people where, that are there in a certain place. What I'm trying to say is that God loves Memphis. He loves Memphis because there, is, there are a huge number of people in Memphis who God loves. Everybody understand that correlation? All right, next slide. Cities are important. Now, I want to tell you the history of cities. The biblical history of cities. It's really interesting. There is a tension between two types of cities in the Bible. One type is called Babel in Scripture, or you could refer to it as Babylon. Anybody ever heard of Tower of Babel? Which is later known as Babylon. There is Babel and Babylon is one type of, of city that is shown to us in Scripture. The other type of city that is shown to us in Scripture is that of Jerusalem. Babel is the city of man. Jerusalem is the city of God. Now look at the characteristics characteristics of Babel. Genesis 11.4. Their whole purpose in establishing that city of Babel was what? Let's make a name for ourselves. Their whole, the whole foundation of the city was self. Self, 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 and selfishness. It promotes self-centeredness. It promotes rebellion. It promotes self-salvation. The whole city was revolving around man. Skyscrapers were to rise above the city. Not for the glory of God, but to promote those who build it, to promote those who design it, to point and say, oh, look at us, we're so great. But you've got a contrast in Scripture between Babylon and Jerusalem. Jerusalem in Scripture is called the city of what? The city of, of God. That was to be a dwelling place, not for our name, but for whose name? God's name, according to 1 Kings 14.21. The origin of that city was not self-centeredness, but rather the love of God. The temple was built on Zion, which is the highest hill. Why? To show that the most important thing in this city was God himself. And the riches of this city were not meant for a select few, but meant for the whole earth, according to Psalm 48, verse 2. What came out of that city was meant to be a blessing to all of the nations. Y'all understand that contrast? Keep going. Now the interesting shift happened during the exile. Because God had established Jerusalem and his people in Jerusalem to be the very city of God. To be the place where his name dwelt, where everything would operate with him at the center. That city was contrasted to the one, the city of sin, the city of man. Jerusalem was to be the place that God's name dwelt, but then what ends up happening? The people of Jerusalem end up getting dispersed throughout all of the pagan cities, even into Babylon, the very city of man. So what were the people of God who were supposed to be living in the city of God, how were they to relate to the people of Babylon? What we see in Jeremiah 29 verses... Turn your Bible real quick. Jeremiah 29. I want you to see this really clear. Verses 4 to 14. Couples group, we looked at this the other night, um, a few weeks ago. But God's instruction to the exiles there in Babylon... Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they might bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they have. For it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, 
declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me and when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you to exile. See, the Israelites had had a couple of options when they got to Babylon. Do we keep ourselves totally apart from the city and say, oh my goodness, we're not supposed to be like these evil people and just close themselves off and shut themselves up in a little hole? And say, okay, Lord, we'll just serve you until you come back for us. Right? Or were they to go over here in Babylon and just totally engage with the city and become like the city and just do everything the city does and just kind of lose their way because they're in Babylon. You might, if you're in Babylon, you do what the Babylons do. What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. And God says to them, you're not supposed to do this or this, but rather I want you to be here. I want you to maintain your identity. I want you to keep growing. I want you to to flourish here. I want you to to be my people here. But at the same time, I don't want you to be separate from the city. I want you to be in the city. And in fact, I want you to be for the city. I want you to be mine. But I also want you to be engaging the city so that they too might know me. He says, seeking their peace, you will find peace. You should be the best citizens of Babylon that there can be. What? Babylon's a pagan city. God says, I know. But you're my people and I want you to stay my people and I want you to be the best citizens of Babylon that there are. Represent me. Keep your identity but engage your heart in the city. Be where the people are. Do what they're doing for the sake of me in this city. And there'll be a day coming that I restore Jerusalem, you to Jerusalem, to the way it was intended to be. Go to the next slide. And then we're done. There's a parallel, folks. We're talking about what is the city that God asked for us here. There is a parallel between God's word and vision for his people in the exile and his vision and word for us today here in Memphis. The church today is a dispersion of God's people. In both Peter and in James, they call, those apostles call us resident aliens. <coughs> you're a resident alien. Isn't that great? Look at your neighbor and just say, you're a stinking resident alien. That's awesome. Okay, you didn't really need to say that. That was kind of weird. But we are now dispersed as God's people. We don't live in a you know, we don't get saved and then get moved to this little isolated place on some commune island and everybody's like, okay, holy, 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 kumbaya, my Lord. You know? Although we sing praise to God, although we love God and we worship God and we serve God with all that we are, we are still very much in this world, are we not? But the Bible calls us resident aliens, which means our citizenship is not here in America. Our citizenship and allegiance is first and foremost to God and His kingdom. Our beliefs and our practices come from our citizenship in heaven. But yet we're residents in Memphis. We live and we work and we play here. Though our citizenship is there, we are resident aliens. The exact same thing that was happening to the Israelites when they were in Babylon. And our call, our call is the same call that God had Seek the peace of this city. Seek the peace of this city. Bless this city. Serve this city. Be the leader in helping the poor. Be the leader in culture. Be the ones who produce the best ideas. Be the best worker in your office. Be the best student in your school. But do it not for yourself, because that's what everybody who doesn't know me does it for. Do it for me. Seek my glory. You should be a citizen that is, your allegiance is to me, but you're here on earth working to glorify me. You should live as if you were in Jerusalem, though you are in Babylon, because there's coming a day that I will bring final consummation 
to this city. Amen? In Revelation 21 and 22, what do we see? The city of God descends from heaven. And it's funny because it's a garden, but it's a city. It's a cultivated garden. The Garden of Eden becomes cultivated into a city, the city that God had intended from the very beginning. Next slide. Whoa, that's really cool. Kind of change shape on that. God desires to renew and redeem Memphis in every city through us. If you look at the left, you might have a hard time seeing this, but I want you to track it. The left represents Babylon and the right represents Jerusalem. What I mean by Babylon and Jerusalem, again, they're types. The city that's focused on self and the city that's focused on God. And we're called to live as if we're citizens of the city of God because we are. But yet we are here as citizens of Memphis. And what is our role? We have the opportunity to see renewal come. Memphis can be a place of racism, classism, and violence. But if we allow God to be God in us, and if we work as God intends for us to work, we can serve and love those who need protection. And see Memphis become a place of refuge and safety. Where no longer people are excluded because of their race or pushed aside because of their background. But rather we include people. We open our arms to people. We love people well. We accept people. We become, as a church, a city within the city, a city that that holds up as an example the way that God intends for it to be. We become a place of refuge and safety. And as we do that, the city of Memphis begins to change. Secondly, we Memphis can sometimes be a place to escape God and escape His law. I can't tell you how many people move to the downtown area because they don't want anything to do with that religious trash in the suburbs. They come to the island and they don't want a church because that's what they're trying to get away from. They like the openness to all these other different religions. They try to escape God and escape the law. But through us, God wants to bring renewal, to bring His love and His peace and His justice to a broken world. And in doing so, to establish a place of justice. He wants Memphis can sometimes be a place of pride and arrogance, of excess and of exhaustion. But through us, He wants to transform our church and then our city to create and cultivate a godly culture so that Memphis can be a place of cultural development. And finally, cities can be, Memphis can be a place of cults and of false belief. But God, through us, can change our city. If we hold out Christ as an ultimate satisfaction to people's needs, then we can see renewal for this city to be a place of spiritual seeking and finding. Next thing. How do we do this? Look at the three down on the bottom. How do we do this, Barry? What's the vision? As you go out and survey our city and our neighborhoods, what is the vision for us? How does this happen? We're going to become an alternate city. We're going to be a people set apart here in Memphis for Memphis. Keller points out these three points, and I think they're just awesome. He says that to do this, we should be gospel-speaking, neighbor-loving, and community-transformed. How are we going to see this happen? We're going to tell people about Jesus in your school, in your workplace. Listen, you talk about sports, you talk about art, you talk about the show you saw at the Orpheum, you talk about things you love. If you love Jesus, we're going to talk about it. Amen? We're going to speak the gospel because we believe that God is the only satisfaction for the human heart. And the only way for God to come to the human heart is to receive reconciliation that comes through Jesus. Secondly, we're to be neighbor-loving people. We're to seek love and peace and welfare for our neighbors, our immediate neighbors beside us in the apartments and houses we live, those who we see on the street, those who we ride by, those who work around us and play around us. We are to love people, and through loving people, they will see the love and grace of God. And third, we are to be community transformed. What this means is that people will see the way that we relate to one another. And as they see that, they will want to be part of you. By our love for one another, Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples. Amen? 
God wants us to have a vision for the city. And what I want you to do this week, and we're done. What I want you to do this week is this. I want you to tour the city, your city, with the heart that Nehemiah had when he toured his city. I don't just mean just go through your normal week. Yeah, you're going to go through your normal week, but I want you to go through your normal week with eyes that are watching for the vision that God has for people around you, places around you, things around you, activities around you. I want you to seek God's vision for your life and for the city all around you. I want you to do some prayer walking this week, in a way. Not that you necessarily have to go on a prayer walk, although you could. But as you go through your normal life, pray and ask God, God, show me your vision for this city. Show me what you want it to be. Yes, it might look like Babylon sometimes, but God, keep in my mind Jerusalem. Help me to remember the city that you want this city to be, a city that at the end of all the days, this city will become through your renewal. Help me to get your vision for this city. Everybody okay with that? Let's pray. Um, I think that's all the sides I have. I want to go to the Lord in prayer. And where you are right now, I just want you to, to spend some time with the Lord. As I said earlier, I truly believe we have been called to one of the greatest privileges of our lifetime. It doesn't involve it doesn't involve all of the worldly stuff that we so often crave, but it involves being a part of what God is doing in this city and in our world. The greatest joy of our life is to be connected to the purposes of God. And today we've been talking about the purposes of God for our city. I wonder this morning if you would just ask God to give you some space this week so that you can have time to gain God's heart for our sin. Ask God to give you His vision, to show you His plan, to give you His eyes as you go through this week. If you're here today and you do not know the satisfaction that God can bring and only God can bring, I want you to know today that He loves you and that the renewal we've been talking about can come to you today when you put your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who He sent for you, that you might have a new life, a new heart. I invite you today to... Turn from the ways that you've been seeking satisfaction in other places and turn toward God and put your faith in Jesus.